Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Harry, what have you bought from the Usherette's tray this week? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm indebted to Ailsa Campbell, who sent me some uh, Woolies Braw Mini Chews. Ah. Um, Highland Toffee and Iron Brew flavour. Ooh. The very dab, apparently, Dan. Uh-huh. I think this is like peak Scottishness. I can't really think of what the... the I didn't know I was going to eat one before I came on air, but I thought if I did, I'd probably start talking like Jimmy Cranky. <laughs> um, I can't really think what the what the equivalent would be in the North East, like an Andy Cat Black Bullets flavoured with brown ale and domestic violence. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I've got, Dan. They're just the, the ultimate in Scottishness. They've got a nice oh, yeah. tartan packet as well. Are you familiar with them? You must have these. In... I can picture them. It's quite a lively, lively um, it's design. It's very nicely isn't it? done, isn't it? I mean, the, the Bruins, the Bruins, a bit, a bit like our old friends at Tunnock's, the Bruins branding is very good, isn't it? Yeah, that's you know, very true. I have to say. You know, so very good. So anyway, so thank you very much for those. I'm enjoying, but I say I'm only going to eat them when, when we're talking in a Scottish accent, <laughs> talking in a weird Scottish accent won't, won't get me in trouble. <laughs> Are they made in Scotland? Because we know about the demand. Well, actually, they were bought, funny enough, they were, bought in, they were bought in Wales. So oh. this is the reach of the brooms now. <laughs> and I think I should say that they're, they're very damn... I guess they're bra, yes, as well. I think I mentioned that. Highland Toffee Mini Chews. Yes, Mini Chews. Yeah, there you are. I don't know. I think they're made in Scotland. I'm trying to find out now. Allergies see ingredients in bold capitals. Um, oh, no, they're distributed in the UK by Rose Marketing. Oh, no. What's KY1, Dan? Oh, Kakodi. Kakodi, there you yeah. are. That's excellent. I knew you, that's your, testing your knowledge of Scottish <laughs> postcodes there, Dan. It's a UK thing. If you bet we're still on, that would be something I might choose is postcodes. Phone codes and postcodes is, is one of my right. areas. Some good top work, top, po- top postcode knowledge there from, from you. Yeah, so anyway, from Kakodi, home of, oh, is that Wraith Rovers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Once you, you crack are. with the phone codes, once you crack the the order of them, it's a bit easier to work out. So your you, you 0190 is lower down the alphabet, so York, Yeovil, and others like that. So right. it's really uh, the, the evenings, good the evenings fly good by. Tip. I must rem- that rem- I must go out for a drink with you sometime, Dan. <laughs> 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 Any other thrilling happenings there? Well, I went to, after the after the game. I went to on Saturday. I went to a little pub nearby, which is normally very quiet, but was actually filled. Um, with a, uh, some sort of sports team who were on a on their Oktoberfest night out. And so they were all dressed in Bavi- Bavarian fancy dress. And while I was in there, a man who was dressed as a sort of Bavarian barmaid in a dirndl and a blonde wig came over and he said, oh, sorry, are you Harry Pearson? He said, I just want to say I really love the when somebody comes to the podcast and everything. It's really, really oh. good. And then he said, and then he said, I suppose sorry, it's probably a bit weird someone dressed like me telling you that. And I said, Oh no, I said, you know, it's got because actually the podcast has a very large number of transvestite followers. And he went, Oh, I'm not a transvestite, I'm a rugby player. <laughs> so anyway, so thank you to his, so so thank you to thank you to him. Uh, it was very nice, it was nice to meet you, and I hope you got home safely without laddering your tights. Um, on another note, I went to Car- the wettest I've ever been at football. I think went to Carlisle a couple of weeks ago, and. Uh, in the pub, perfectly sunny. As soon as we set off walking to the ground, absolutely poured down. Got to the ground, and I, we 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 it was so wet. We said, "Oh, we normally stand in the paddock, which is a bit uncovered." So we said, "No, we'll get to, we'll get seats in the stand." So we got seats in the stand. As soon as we got in to the stand under cover, the sun came out. So it was sunny the whole game. We eventually just about dried out, and then 
on the walk home, 50 yards out of the ground, it just started to pour down again. Uh-huh. That, that rain where the, where the water comes out of gutters, so it kind of comes down <laughs> in a waterfall. By the time I got to the station, absolutely soaked, got on the train, and the minute the train set off, the sun came out, and it all the way back through Holt was just rainbows everywhere when you looked out of the window. And it was the wettest I've ever been. I thought when I took, you know, when I took my hat off, a fish would fall out. The only time I've been wetter than that was I went to see a, a night game also in Carlisle, it was Carlisle City, and I got similarly wet, but it was made worse by the fact that just as I was coming back to the station, past those big Weatherspoon pubs, I don't know if you know, on the, on the way to the station in Carlisle, a man burst out of them and was sick all over my shoes. <laughs> so, you know, so it wasn't as bad as that, is what I'm really saying. But the other, the other odd thing that's happened at Carlisle is, I've noticed this, and um, I commented on this to a friend of mine, is, a big, is that they don't bring Olga the Fox out anymore. Oh. There's no Olga the Fox. I don't know what's gone on. And when I mentioned this to a friend of mine, I said, and he said, no, the last time I was there, there wasn't Olga the Fox. He said, it'll be something to do with political correctness. <laughs> but is it something to do with political correctness? I don't know. Is it, is it likely that fans, fans of Carlisle have complained? We don't want to see a stuffed fox. It's cruel and inhumane. I don't know. Seems unlikely, but there we are. At least you got home from Carlisle 01228 because the, <laughs> the, the cement train... Uh, fell on the on the line, didn't it? A few days. It did, there was that. a yes, there was a derailment. Yeah, that did, disrupted. It did disrupt my travel in the week. I pictured um, that I was, it cemented the tracks due to all that rain and things, and just blocked them entirely. Well, it would have done actually. In all that rain, it would have been a terrible thing. Yes, it just were like one of those things where you know jelly, like in an old Ron, two Ronnies joke, where jelly, you know, jelly gets on the line or something. I don't know. And then it rains, and I don't know. Anyway, let's forget about that. Bit. <laughs> <laughs> and how about down London Way, Andy? Well, I've I've now got a I've turned sixty, so I've now got a sixty plus yeah. travel card for use on public transport within London. I feel as though I should go on a long journey. Some I could get a bus all the way to Essex if I wanted to, but I might not just yet. But the the opportunity is there though, tantalising. <laughs> Have a wander around a suburb, maybe go to a garden centre, and um, come all the way back. Um, it was reported last week that um, Hannibal Mabry, young Tunisian who's on loan at Birmingham from from Man United has been watching Peaky Blinders to try and adjust to the Birmingham accent. You see, he said, um, there's a quote from him, the accent is still very hard to understand, but not harder than Scottish people. Um, when he signed <laughs> in the summer, Birmingham did a video for social media referencing Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, showing a, a scene from the film where Jodie Foster walks along the line of cells to where she first meets Hannibal Lecter. Except this one, she's walking along and then she gets to the cell and it's it's Birmingham's Hannibal who says good evening. And so it's great to see that Hannibal is still a first name in Tunisia, actually, a reference to uh, the ruler of Carthage, whose ruins are just outside Tunis. And, but, and perhaps instead of the Hannibal Lecter reference, Birmingham should have done a Photoshop of him going over the Alps on an elephant or, or done it for real. I don't know how, how far their budget would have extended, but they should have at least have discussed, presumably it was discussed at a meeting and they decided it was cheaper to use, to just uh, use a bit of old silence of the lambs footage. Um, something I, I should mention, something that was featured in our weekly newsletter, the Howl last week, when um, Trent Alexander-Arnold came on for Liverpool at Forest last Saturday. It was the first time that a player uh, played a Premier League match at a ground near a river of the same name since Don Hutchinson played for Everton at Sheffield Wednesday in 1999. So if you want to keep a seat by yourself on a train or a bus, which I may well be doing with my new travel pass, just start telling people that as they go to sit down. I can guarantee it'll work. They'll go off and stand by the central doors and said be hemmed in by a pushchair. Um, <laughs> also, we should say a bit of you know topical uh, comment. Really, We've got a new prime minister who has, according to BBC News uh, yesterday, 
He's got a, a bulging and daunting in-tray. Um, so I used to have a system for dealing with that. But when, back when we had an office, I had a, this is fascinating content. I had a multi-tier in-tray, which I probably after about 30 years, I think. And if any items near the bottom of the tray hadn't been looked at for a while, maybe a few months, I'd throw them away. It never failed for me, and presumably that's the kind of uh, approach you'll be taking. Might as well. Nothing else has worked, has it? So we'll see. Um, it was said um, when Liz Truss, in her, during her brief um, Brian Clough-esque 424 days or whatever it was as Prime Minister, had been considering not implementing the fan-led review, the, the thing that was backed by fan groups that Sports Minister Tracy Crouch had, had put forward, um, including things like football having an independent regulator. And there'd been some heavy lobbying being done, not least, I think, by some Premier League clubs on the trust administration so what will rishi sunak now do now he is supposedly a football fan a southampton fan though like all politicians these days he has to claim to like football penny morden apparently is a portsmouth fan so perhaps they, they'll have bants ending in a z in in cabinet meetings and i'm sure we'll hear about this soon if they do anyway and also i should finally say it wasn't the worst thing about boris johnson attempting his his political comeback over the last week but I see there's already been a revival of those terrible compound swears like cockwomble and fuck trumpet and all those things. Mm. Just terrible, limp, twee garbage. I hope they don't creep into football. They haven't yet really crept into football discourse very much, I don't think, but, uh, but uh, I hope we can keep them at bay. <laughs> <laughs> and now your fortnightly reminder about our live event later in the year. On November 17th at 7pm, we'll be heading to West Didsbury and Charlton for a World Cup warm-up. And then on December the 8th at 6.30pm, you can join us for the When Saturday Comes Christmas Party at Dulwich Hamlet. Tickets are £20 or £15 for early birds if you get in quick. See more details and get your tickets at whensaturdaycomes.eventbrite.co.uk. And I think the Bee Gees have something to do with that first venue, don't they, Andy? Uh, Is it on the Isle of Man? (laughs) (laughs) I must have missed that. Are we going to fly? Issue 426 of When Saturday Comes magazine is out now. And joining me to probe its pages is Deputy Editor Tom Hocking. Tom, tell us about some of the contents in this month's issue. Thanks, Dan. So um, it's it's late October, so obviously it's time for our, our World Cup special, uh, which is not often I'll, I'll be saying that, hopefully ever again. But um, yeah, it's, it's sort of one of the, to be honest, one of the most difficult issues we, we've ever done, certainly in my time. Um, at, at WSC, it's a, a morally reprehensible tournament and an organisational nightmare for pretty much everyone involved in football, including you know domestic leagues and, and everyone else like that. So, so hopefully the readers think that we've we've managed to get the tone right. Um, very difficult thing to pitch, but especially with the wall chart, which was um, brilliantly illustrated as ever by by Dave Robinson and mm. involves some some serious points and some um, and hopefully some things that will make people laugh as well when it's on your on your fridge or covering up a hole in the wall or something like that. <laughs> um, so um, as always, obviously a wall chart is a big selling point of this issue, but it's not all about that. We've also got um, our World Cup team guide, which covers covers every every country that's. Uh, at the tournament and it, it focuses on all, all the big topics 
as ever. So you can find out which forward invests in a pastry company, uh, which country's star is promoting a different supermarket to the rest of his teammates, and crucially, which Premier League defender went on TV and beat a calculator in a math speed challenge. So yeah, um, as ever, we're really getting to the nitty gritty of what this World Cup's about. Um, and we do, we cover the slightly more serious side of the World Cup very much more serious side of the World Cup um, in the editorial as well as this issue. Um, and there will almost certainly be more to come on on that topic as, as the months go on. Um, and if the World Cup isn't your thing, if you're boycotting or if you're just not not in that frame of mind yet, that's fine because we've got um, a full 48-page WSC for you to enjoy as well. Um, so we've got, uh, first up, we've got Taylor Parks. It's his less than favourable Farewell to Mark Lawrenson's BBC punditry career. Um, Lawrenson, when he when he was sacked, of course, blamed it on uh, wokery, yeah. uh, which uh, showed exactly the lack of self awareness and, and sort of dinosaur attitudes that are the actual reason that he was replaced, um, and sort of his his dour persona. Um, but Taylor uses the line: uh, "The old guard, haltingly and halting and inarticulate, sometimes seemed annoyed." to be on television at all, which I think sums up Mark Lawrence very well. And that, as you'd expect with a Taylor Parks article, there are plenty of other, other lines um, in there. Sort of the idea that maybe Alan Shearer is the only one left of that generation now, although she possibly a little bit late, obviously a bit later than, than Mark Lawrence. So uh, now Alan Hansen is has disappeared off our screens now. So so yeah, Mark Lawrence waving goodbye. But uh, yeah, uh, elsewhere, back in the, in the modern world, uh, away from Mark Lawrence, we've got um, Charlie Morris went to Brisbane Road to see uh, Leighton Orient for our match of the month. And uh, he watched them lose their perfect home record to struggling Newport County. Um, I'm backing this up with absolutely zero statistical evidence, but I, I feel like match of the month tends to slightly curse teams when yeah. we pick them specifically because they're doing well. Um, last month it happened to Luton as well. They, they obviously had a really good season last season and they, they lost to Wigan in our match of the month. Um, but but yeah, so, so sorry to Leighton Orient for that, but obviously it's, a, it's accompanied by some lovely photos of, of, yeah. of the ground by Simon Gill. And um, among Brisbane Road's many sort of interesting features that obviously famously the flats with balconies that allow residents to watch matches and now they have something called the third dugout in which fans watch the game from a, a third dugout around the sidelines and they serve pizzas during it sponsored by a, a well-known pizza company so mm. there you go i don't i don't know if that's a good thing or not because it's mm. be quite annoying i don't i don't want to eat a full pizza during the game i don't no. know about you dan no. <laughs> No. So it seems a bit much to me, but each to yeah. Um <laughs> Anyway, uh, else elsewhere we've got um, we've got one Leeds United fans epic hunt for a, a Bielsa bucket, um, which is a very entertaining article. Um, Scotland's joy at the much maligned uh, Nations League, and they've, they've actually had a really good time in it, and they actually got a one promotion from it. So so that's quite exciting, and it gives the, it's sort of giving them the chance to to test themselves against other nations of similar level, which I, I guess is why it was brought in. Um, and, and it seems to be doing its job for, for them. Uh, you know, England really struggled in, in theirs. So, so yeah, so an article focusing on that. And um, we've got a three-part feature that looks at players who have burst onto the scene at their local clubs. And I think most clubs will have this before their careers sort of petered out a little bit and they, they didn't go on to the great things 
that was sort of expected of them. I think I think most fans of clubs will have a player that jumps to mind. Mine's always Richie Humphreys when I think of that, although he's not not one of the subjects. So you'll have to read to find out who the three players are. <laughs> And we've got a double pager on the women's game. One part of that is is by Jesse Parker Humphreys and, and looks at the lack of geographical spread of WSL teams. Because obviously, as a as a twelve team league, it, it's not got a great opportunity for spread of teams anyway. And then it's mostly focused in in London and the north or the northwest. So it's sort of Jesse looking at whether it's going to need, for example, a league expansion, or what's more likely is a bigger focus on the clubs down the pyramid to sort of, um, I guess, capture the enthusiasm of what happened over the Euros and allow people who don't live in London or Manchester or Liverpool a chance to go and go and watch uh, women's football. Brilliant stuff. So uh, truly a bumper issue. We can yes, claim that. Yes, it really lightly, is. Yeah, we cra- crammed a lot in. So. <laughs> <laughs> so go out and get yours now. It's in a lovely red packaging if, you, if you're not a subscriber in, in the shops, but of course, subscription still available on the brand new When Saturday Comes website. Jackpot tickets. Pound a go, draw it half time, 500 pound prize draw, get your hats and scarves and pin badges, your hats and scarves and pin badges, get your hats and scarves and pin badges, pin badges, hats, scarves, hats and scarves and pin badges. Program, program, program. Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot tickets, pound a go, draw at half time, £500 yours to take on tonight. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Peter Handyside, Lutterworth Athletic, when line marking machines go rogue, and it's landed on one-off champions. Oh, Andy, mm-hmm. who or what in all creation does that bring to mind? Well, first off, I, I noticed actually that the five English clubs have won one league title. I've also won the FA Cup and the case of Leicester Forest, the League Cup as well. So there isn't here a team who've done the ultimate one-off of just one league title and nothing else major. I'm not including like promotions for the second division. So all the best examples are, are from overseas. And I think that maybe the best example of a team who had one kind of mini era, one of the best examples, are Cagliari in Italy. Champions in 1969-70 had six players in Italy's World Cup squad that year, including four who played in the World Cup final. They've been runners-up in both the league and the cup the previous year. And in their championship season, they only let in 11 goals in 30 games, which is still a record for, I'd unlikely to be beaten, I would have thought of it, for one of the, the major leagues. Um, on the day they clinched the, the title, two people who were on the run from the police who tried to hide in the ground were, were caught, but then allowed to watch the game, um, being handcuffed to, to barriers on the terraces, <laughs> uh, which is not a nice touch. Um, uh, Calgary, they finished fourth two years later, and they're only then, they're only four points away from the title, and but then that was pretty much it. I mean, they, they've had the occasional OK season since. They went down in the late 70s. They got to the semi-finals of the UEFA Cup in 93-94. So they'd finished sixth in the league the previous year. But um, they've never really got back to anything like even the occasional good season where they finished third or something like that. The star player then is Luigi Riva, who's probably the best-known Italian striker of his generation, who stayed with them to the end of his career. And for a while, I just assumed 
before I knew much about him, that he was actually from Sardinia, but he actually wasn't. He was from Northern Italy and he joined them. He was playing for a youth team in a tournament against Calories youth team and he got spotted and they signed him up when he was about 16. So they weren't even his local team. And that, so that was pretty good that he stayed there the whole time. Although it's really, and it's not something that would happen now. I mean, a star player, the star striker with the national team, spending his career with one generally kind of modest club, though they had been com- properly competitive for about four seasons. I suppose if they'd been mid-table when he was at his height, maybe he would have been tempted to move. But um, as it was, he stuck with them. The other great one-off title in Italy would be Verona in 84-85. Like Cagliari, they'd also been cup runners up. They were run, runners up in the cup for the two previous seasons. So they had a fairly strong team. Um, they had four or five players in the squad who got caps for Italy. There were no really famous names. The best-known players were the, the two foreign players, the Danish striker Prebin Alkjaer, and the German defender, defender midfielder Hans-Peter Briegel, who's a, a former pentathlete who always played with the socks rolled down. I remember what a pundit once said about him. He always looks like he's, he's going on a sponsored walk. He had the kind of slightly muscular, <laughs> <laughs> a muscular gait. But the Verona's title, which is a significant thing in it, it was the only season where the league didn't decide a few days in advance who the referees would be for the forthcoming round of fixtures. Mm. It was done on a kind of random draw. And some did wonder if this may have had some kind of effect, because those sort of suspicions were later borne out in 2006 when Juventus ended up being relegated and then four other clubs were charged with trying to influence the committee that decided which referees should be assigned to their matches. And there's a Juventus official called Luciano Moggi who had his phone tapped as he was having loads of discussions with and about referees. The main thing I remember about that, about the news reports of that, was that, because I had various quotes from him, was they referred to English referees as stronzi, which means arseholes. I don't know if that meant they were un- unpersuadable or just, you know, arseholes. Um, Juventus, of course, cleared out their backroom management staff after that. And, of course, have not been linked with any fun- funny business to do with refereeing in- at all since then. And the <laughs> nine title-winning seasons they've had in the past uh, 15 years or so. Uh, in Germany, nearest equivalent to Calgary would be Eintracht Braunschweig. One title in the 66-67, in the early days of the Bundesliga, no cups. Well, that was when the Bundesliga was very open. A different team won it for some, I think, the first eight years in a row before Bayern Munich and, and Mönchengladbach started to dominate. And Braunschweig's title, this is another one you could say to someone who's about to sit down next to you on a bus or trying to drive them away. Strange fact, Braunschweig's title was in the middle of a run of three seasons when the Bundesliga was won by teams who've won nothing since. Munich 1860 the year before, then Nuremberg the year after. Um, but both Munich 1860 and Europa had won major trophies before. They're both kind of historical clubs who've had some success historically, whereas Braunschweig weren't really. Um, team that won the league also, like Calgary, based on a very tight defence, only letting 27 goals, which is 14 fewer than the next best defence, including several German internationals. Goalkeeper Horst Folter was a, a, played at the World Cup in 1970. He was a, de- a deputy to Setmeyer. And they were a pretty solid Bundesliga team for a decade or so after that. They were the first German club with a shirt sponsor, Jager Meister, 1973. Had one good season in the 70s. They were third, only missed a title by a point in 76-77. But they've only spent one season in the Bundesliga since 1985. So I suppose people of a certain age, say 60, as that's quite a good age, uh, would kind of see them as a typical top-level German club in much the same way that people of the same age here might see, I don't know, say Derby or Stoke as kind of typical. You, you, if you were naming your your top 20 kind of top-level clubs, and if you were German, you might put them in, but most younger people, I'm pretty sure, wouldn't. Um, also, should mention Oblich from Belgrade. Um, 
97-98, they won the uh, what was then the Yugoslav League. It was then down to Serbia, just Serbia and Montenegro since sort of split. And of course, they, uh, the only uh, the two big Belgrade teams, Red Star and Partizan, are the only other teams who've won the Yugoslav as it then was Serbia Montenegro, and now is Serbian League since, since then. Um, uh, but Obelic were quite an old club. They're created back in the 1920s, and they, they got into the top level of the Yugoslav League. Um, a couple of years before they won it, um, possibly helped by the fact that their owner was um, Arkan, paramilitary leader during the Yugoslav War, had also been <laughs> a bank robber and it, it was said um, a, a contract killer for the for the communist government in the in the 1980s. Before that, um, matches often attended by men, uh, groups of men with guns, might have been a bit of an intimidating place to play. Possibly, mm. um, Arkan later banned was banned by UEFA from being the owner in 1998, the, the summer after they'd won the league. Uh, and and his wife took over, so I'm sure he had nothing more to do with the running of the club. Very well done, you wife. You really sorted that one out. Um, two years later, um, he was shot dead in a hotel foyer. Kind of thing that can happen to anyone. Um, just one of those things, you know. And um, the the club stayed at the top level for another five years, but got relegated and, and have since disappeared. And I've heard it said, and I'm sure this is this is a calumny and 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 entirely um, unfair thing to say that the occasional briefly successful non-league team here has owed their success to money being laundered through the club by owners with some underworld links. So that, that, that may just be hearsay. <laughs> and Harry? Um, well, Andy mentioned the, the end of the, the five clubs. Um, one of them, West Bromwich, who won the title in 1920, uh, the first season back after the Great War. And they, that season, they scored 104 goals and they finished nine points ahead of Burnley. In days of two points for a win, that was quite an achievement. But one of the noticeable things about that is if is that that season, it, it kind of shows how football's changed, that there were only two teams in the English First Division who were south of West Bromwich, and that was Arsenal and Chelsea. And in the Premier League this season, there are 10 teams south of West Bromwich. What does that say about the state of Britain today? I don't know. Anyway, we'll move on from that to uh, to Spain, where um, Real Betis won their only league title in 1934-35, except they weren't called Real Betis then because the Spanish Second Republic had abolished all royal patronage. And so they were actually called Betis Belompier. Mm. It sounds like a cartoon elephant. <laughs> and we've, we've had it talked about the ampersand, but the Belompier is a clack. Dan, I think that's what it's called anyway, ah. which is a which is a kind of because it's from ballon meaning ball and pie meaning foot, so it literally means ball foot. So it's a sort of um, a, a kind of direct translation, I think, which is a clack. So maybe we should look for a clack derby. Um, <laughs> put 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 our listeners onto that. And anyway, so Betis Balompi and they they finished ahead of uh, Madrid FC, which was actually Real Madrid because they were they taken the hump and didn't even bother to invent a clack name for themselves. Um, and at the time, um, Betis were actually interested. They were managed by an Irishman, Patrick O'Connell from Dublin, uh, wing half. He played for Manchester United and Hull City. But before he went to Spain, he was player manager of Ashington. Um, and he succeeded Fred Pentland at Racing Santander. And then he went on to manage Barcelona uh, and Sevilla uh, in Spain. But then it reports that he, he died penniless and destitute in London in 1959. So I don't know what went on there. Um, but anyway, so that was Spain. And we should make a little mention as well of the of our old friends, Racing White Daring of Molenbeek, who won a single Belgian title in 74, 75. I think we've, we've talked about them at some length on this podcast. So moving on to Italy, where Andy mentioned Cagliari, um, with Luigi Riva. I think that Riva said later on when he was asked about why he didn't move to Juventus, or he, he said winning winning one title with Calgary was worth winning 10 with Juventus, which I think is probably probably a sort of truth, I think, in that. Mm. Um, 
teams that have won the Italian title once, one of the most interesting ones is, is Nevesi. Uh, in 1921-22. They're the only team ever to have won the Italian title without playing a single season in Serie A or indeed in the Italian second division, which I'm saying second division because I don't know how you pronounce B in Italian. <laughs> Serie B, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, and they are they're Nevesi, uh, one of the teams that are known as Unione Sportiva Dilentantistica, which I'm rather fond of. Uh, and they play, they, they're from Novi in Liguria, uh, a town that's twinned with Bista which maybe says something about it, I don't know. And they found it in 1919, and they have a rather lovely uh, shirt with a sky blue with a white band across the chest and a red cross in the middle, uh, currently playing in the sixth tier of Italian football. But that year, 1921-22, is quite unusual also in Italian football in that there were two champions um, because there was the original league, the FIGC, that Nevesi won, and then there was a breakaway league, the Confederazione Calcistica Italiana, um, which was won by um, Provercelli, who were one of the great Italian teams that were sort of around the time of the First World War and then faded from view. But it's a very complicated system as well. There's a whole load of regional groups and then playoffs and then more groups and then more playoffs. And eventually, um, Nevesi got to the final and they beat uh, Sampia Daranesi, who were the team that became Sampdoria in the final, to, to snatch the title. Uh, another Italian team that did a similar thing, Casale. Uh, in 1913-14 and they could notice because they're the first Italian team that ever beat a team of English professionals when they defeated Reading in 1913. Mm. Um, also featured a guy called Angelo Mattea um, who was I think the, I think he holds the record as the oldest man ever to get his first goal in Serie A. He was 38 when he did it um, and he, pl- he played from for them from about for about 21 years. Casal also a good kit, I think. Um, a black shirt with a white cross, but um, not black shirts in the sense of being fascist. I, I should have hastily nice. said in case any Casal fans are listening. But um, well, I almost felt I, compelled to to shout out when you talk when you said about Braunschweig because that is Brunswick in English, isn't it? It's one of yeah. the few one of those few German places that for some reason has an English version, an Anglo an Anglo an Anglicised version of it, Brunswick. And, and they of course fought their troops fought with the Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo and they wore black uniforms. There you go. Mm. That's the, so that's the connection with Casal. Yeah. What's the phone code? Um I don't know, I don't know. I was hoping you would help us out with that on the postcode. Yeah. <laughs> Time for the part of the podcast where one of us chooses a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Harry, what's your choice this time? Well, I've gone for Friedel Rausch. Um, it's uh, by Martina from 1989, celebrating FC Luzerne of Switzerland. I think their only league title. Uh, Friedel Rausch was the German manager. I was slightly attracted to this because the cover, I thought I thought was, I thought thought was, it looked like it was being sung by a ventriloquist and dummy. <laughs> but it's actually, when, when I looked at it closer, because my eyesight is fading, um, it's actually the singer Martina wearing a, wearing a kind of cap and sitting on Friedel Rausch's lap. I sort of thought, I thought she was eventually, she looked like a dummy. Anyway, but she isn't. So she's singing on this. Uh, Friedel Rausch was a German. He was a manager of Lucerne. He took them to the, the Swiss title in 1989, the Swiss Cup in 92. As a player, best known as a defender, uh, made his career, most of his career for Schalke and probably best known in Germany for an incident in the Ruhr Derby of 1969 um, when he was bitten, savagely bitten by an Alsatian dog. Um, 
And the dog, and I thought the dog would. Was, I thought the dog must have been a police dog, as in that other incident that we talked about in a in a previous podcast. But in fact, it wasn't. It was an Alsatian dog that had been brought into the ground by a Dortmund fan. And better yet, the dog is called Blitz, which I don't know. It sort of struck me at first. It's only really later I realised that Blitz means lightning in German, because otherwise I thought it was a bit offensive. You know, it's like having a bulldog called Dresden. But anyway. Um, so that's so this is so this celebrates Friedel Rausch, the man who was who led Luzerne to a Swiss title despite having been savagely bitten by a Dortmund dog. Now it's time for our sprightly feature, The Final Third, in which we ask someone to help us build a football museum by donating a match, a player and an object. This time I'm joined by John Nicholson, football writer and novelist. John, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Dan. Yeah, very well. Um, Enjoying a nice rainy day on the Cowell Peninsula, which is pretty much every day, really. I noticed on your Twitter account last night you picked out a particularly beautiful Scottish footballer's haircut. Can you describe the hair to me? Well, it was like a rug that's been eaten by rats. Um, <laughs> it was very bizarre. Um, I think it owed much to um, freeform jazz. <laughs> it was strange. <laughs> it, was, it was like short at one side, and but with a comb over and a kind of mm. weird um, mullet at the back. It was very strange. Yeah, but uh, he was playing for Anon Athletic, so maybe it's something to do with that. <laughs> so will it make it into one of your th- football 365 columns, do you think? I, I think it might do at some point. Yeah, haircuts <laughs> are the worst haircuts in football. The thing is with haircuts, though, is that one thing you notice when you look back in uh, the 60s and 70s, it's like nobody had a haircut. They just had hair and they had it cut. But like the idea of a haircut, as we know it now, didn't really exist. It, everyone's head just looks like one of those cushions where all the form has come out of it, and it's just bursting out everywhere. And I think haircuts only were in, only invented in the eighties. Nobody had one until then. <laughs> We've known each other for some years now, but I've noticed your growing love of Scottish lower division football, Welsh league, Irish league, even I think in there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it's true, and a reason being is. I mean, I always when we I lived in Edinburgh, I always went to see um, Spartans play, and I used to really enjoy that because the pies were phenomenal. It was a two pie game. It was really fantastic pies, <laughs> and you could drink as well there, obviously, at the amateur grounds. So it was really good, and um, and I just feel as if it's the repository of real football, um, and that in and I mean by that the football stripped of all of the sort of corporate just. Everything you hate about modern football yeah. doesn't exist in lower league Scottish football. Probably actually in lower league football in England too, you know. 
And I often say to people when they get disillusioned about the Premier League and all the money and oh, just all the awful owners and everything like that, I say, just go down the pyramid. You'll find a level where it, it, it suits you, you know? And I, 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 mean, I know that you feel that same way too. And it, yeah. it, it brings you back to what football really kind of – the things that really mean most about it, which is about community and it's about sort of locality and sort of civic pride, really. It's not mm. to do with international global capitalism. No, that's my big hope for this impending World Cup is that people get out there and, and find that love again down the pyramid instead of just moaning at the distasteful nature of it also. Yeah, we'll absolutely. See a bit well, that. that would be a nice silver lining to come out of a very dark cloud, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So those listening will know you probably from Football 365. You have a column in the Irish Examiner now. You've written several football books that have done very well indeed. But I know you as well as the man who has written a lot of novels based on Teesside. That's right, I have. I've written uh, 15 of the Nick Geimer crime series, Yeah, which are all based in and around Teesside, North Yorkshire. That is a kind of string to my bow that I only started about 10 years ago. Yeah, and I wrote three. Um, I launched the whole series with three uh, that were published on the same date because I thought that if people like one, they'll want to get another one straight away. And that proved to be quite a good kind of commercial idea, really. So I wrote 15 in about eight years, seven years. But then I had writer's block, which I'm only just emerging from now Mm. um, in relation to the, the fiction writing. It's a very different head you need for fiction writing compared to writing about football. I can't really, it's difficult to explain. It's like the difference between prose and maths. That's how I could say. Is that football, you're talking about real stuff, but things that have happened, facts even. Whereas fiction, you're making stuff up. And that seems to use a different part of your brain. And my my kind of writing brain dried up. Uh, my fiction writing brain dried up. And uh, I'm only just really sort of dried up about 18 months ago and I'm only just getting it going again now. I think it's partly because of lockdown in the sense that I wasn't going out and doing stuff and I think you have to experience human interaction even if it's just vicariously by seeing people doing stuff in order to stimulate you to write about people doing stuff you know if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting stuff, actually. Okay, well, we've got you on here to talk about that, but also as our latest guest curator for the When Saturday Comes Football Museum. So, first of all, John, I'd like you to nominate for the museum a match. Right, well, the match I am nominating is the Anglo-Scottish Cup final in uh, November 1975 between Middlesbrough and Fulham. Now, this was the first Anglo-Scottish Cup final and uh, and um, which Middlesbrough won one nil over two legs, and I went to the first leg, which was held on the twenty sixth of November, nineteen seventy five, and uh, it was a, a freezing cold night, and it rained for the entire duration of the game, and we scored a scrappy goal. Armstrong scored a stra- scrappy goal, and then we went and played the return leg um, a week later, and drew nil nil, and so we won the Anglo Scottish Cup. And uh, it always annoyed me when Borough won the League Cup. So people were saying, oh, it's the first trophy they've ever won. No, it's not. It wasn't the first trophy we ever We had won this Anglo-Scottish Cup. And in 1980, we won the Kirin Cup in Japan. Yes, yes. And people forget this. And, and that's before we even look at all of the um, uh, Northern League stuff that we won in the turn of the century. But um, So that always stands out in my mind. It stands out as well, not just because it meant it was a bit of silverware, because it was kind of a, a phase in the mid-'70s where we were quite good. The borough quite good. 
because we got promoted in '74 with that that world famous Jack Charlton team. Well, not world famous, but <laughs> famous <laughs> in the locale of Teesside. And '74-5, um, uh, we finished seventh in the first division. And uh, just a couple of months after this game, we got to the semi-final of the League Cup, and we'd run the first leg of that actually one nil v City, but we lost the return four nil. So it was just because, as you know, Middlesbrough, it's it's it's. It, it, we know we don't go for the glory, do we? You know, <laughs> and so that stands out in my mind as just kind of a little golden period. But it also because it seemed very quintessentially Borough, in that it was a miserable freezing cold night, an absolutely terrible game of football. Um, everybody was drenched. The pitch was like a pudding, and um, and yet we won. And uh, you know, we sort of pulled a little sort of golden ray out of a dark cloud. And uh, so it always stood out in my mind for that. And and also just simply because it was that first, because we didn't, see, the Anglo-Scottish Cup is a very esoteric thing. And I'm sure, like me, you love the, an esoteric cup almost more than anything else. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's what we live for, really. And uh, we'd had the Texaco <laughs> Cup, which we'd been in as well, and the Anglo-Scottish came after. It's just a brilliant tournament. It, apparently, I don't know how they picked the teams, just randomly. <laughs> but, you know, you could end up playing Air United, which seemed very exotic at the time. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Well, so, anyway, is, that's, my, that's, my, that's my big match. It's beautiful. The, the good thing is I've already got something we can put in the museum case, which is one of my Middlesbrough pennants. Um, that's pennants with a T, not pennants. We've all paid Middlesbrough pennants <laughs> that I have on the wall here. I was just thinking, I bet it doesn't have that on, but the top on it, it says honours, and then it says Anglo-Scottish Cup winners, 76, above Division Two champions, above runners-up to yeah. all of this, which I think is tremendous. So it, was, it is a 70s pennant, so it must have it must have really uh, cut through, as they say now. Uh, um, that's right, you see. It's also, that reflects the fact that winning a cup, any cup, was bigger than winning a league. It really yeah. was. Cup victories mattered, you know? Like yeah. now there's just so much litter in the season, like getting in the way of the um, the task of earning money in the Premier League. Yeah. But like back then, no. You, know, you, you you hold every trophy aloft. Yeah. In the case of the Kirin Cup, I would urge listeners to get on YouTube and try and find that final because it is the most incredible trophy that isn't a trophy. It's an ornamental shield-type vase thing, and it is... It is Quite a colour of blue, as far as I remember. So, yeah, get on the, the, the Kirin Cup one. Fantastic stuff. So we've got the Anglo-Scottish Cup. And finally, an entry for Middlesbrough Football Club. Uh, yes. And next, John, let's have from you a player. Well, I'm sticking with the Borough theme here um, because my player is Stuart Bourne. Mm. Um, as the chant on the terraces went at the time, six foot two, eyes of blue, Stuart Bourne is after you. Um, and he was that sort of defender. He wasn't like a modern defender. Uh, who is kind of like a looks like a live middle distance runner? Stuart was a big lad. It was just a massive slab of meat, and uh, which if you collided with him, it would really, really hurt. And I really loved him um, because um, he was played for the borough from seventy one to seventy nine, over three hundred appearances, and he was uh, he was the captain for most of that period as well. And uh, he led uh, the team in that seventy three seventy four um, record breaking promotion season. Uh, which stands out in my mind just as a, uh, uh, you know, it's just a fantastic time because it was so odd that we only lost four games all season. And it was just like a week after week after week we'd win. And we won one, we lost two at the end. When we got promoted, we lost two. And then we won 8 nil in the penultimate game. But 8 nil, Borough. No, and it all seemed very, very um, exotic. And I think he even knew at the time that it was a blip in history. <laughs> 
I'd better cling on to this while it happened. But anyway, Stewie Bowen was the um, he was the captain of that side. Um, he's from Mansfield as well, and uh, he went back. I think later in his career, uh, played for Mansfield, and um, he also played a game for Hartlepool as well. In fact, his last game I think was for Hartlepool, which is again quite brilliant. Really, if you're going to have your final game of your career, let's make it at Victoria Park with the wind blowing in off the North Sea. Um, so yeah, he stands out as well because. He features in a Half Man, Half Biscuit song. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, but um, he, the Half Man, Half Biscuit song is called The Bladder Rack Allowance, yeah. um, which is a very interesting song. And uh, uh, the lyric goes, Home sweet home, Facebook, Gogglebox wine. Who's Stuart Bohm? And why is he swimming in brine? <laughs> so, you know, obviously... Probably not one of the world's most profound statements, but cryptic <laughs> enough to to qualify as a, a, a as a, an entry into the museum. I think. Oh, wonderful! I love that chant because it starts off so nicely about his, his lovely eyes of blue. You think it's going to be a salute to his sheer beauty, and then it's quickly into violence. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, he's got lovely eyes as he's beating you into jam. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, superb. Right, let's have an object for the museum, John. Right, well, my object is something that I acquired in 1971, and it is a bust of Billy Bremner. Now, now, when I say bust, it's not a full-size bust, it's a tiny little plastic bust, and it came from Joe Mercer's Great Britain Soccer Squad 1971. And these were, as was popular at the time with ESO, um, something you could collect in return for spending money on petrol. And uh, you bought these, for, or you got these uh, at Cleveland Petrol, which was a very local... Uh, thing to Teesside. Cleveland Petrol was owned by Esso, but they kept the local kind of logo for it. And uh, this was the only place you could get them. You had to spend a certain amount of money and you saved up, you know, points or coupons or whatever it was. And uh, you handed them over and they gave you one of these little busts. Now, there was about, uh, I think it was about 14 of them, something like that. And uh, they were all from the, sort of England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. They were the most strange looking things but the strangest of all was billy bremner who looked like a man who'd had an industrial accident and lost an eye <laughs> it looked very bizarre now i only had billy that was the only one i had i don't know i don't remember how it came into my life but i think my dad emerged one day with it and threw it at me and just said hey you can have this because i had collected all of the so badges that i mean you know all of this but there was you could collect all the well actually it wasn't it was 76 badges it wasn't all it wasn't all the sides and uh there were little metal things you stuck them on a big thing and there was coins you could collect mm-hmm. and oh it's brilliant for anybody who's a collector i mean i'm a big record collector as most people know but um i have the collecting uh gene and uh, i will collect anything i mean i i really really would collect anything i, I once collected packaging from from biscuits and boxes of cornflakes, every I, I I and I wish I'd kept the collection because that yeah. was in the early eighties, and now it looks if you see that stuff, it looks takes you right back, you know. Yeah. Anyway, but obviously I, I am insane. I realise that, um, <laughs> but but Essa were brilliant for all of that. So anyway, I, I got this little bust of Billy Bremner. Now it was rock hard. It was made of plastic or resin or something. It was absolutely rock. It was really, it was it felt like granite, you know. And uh, I used to uh, wrap my brother on the head with it, because as you did when you were fighting, even though he was five years older than me. I wrap him on the head with it. It was a very useful weapon as well. So I like to feel as if I could have held me on in a fight at the borough uh, with my little Billy Bremner head, you know? and it would look great in a museum. 
it's just white. And uh, it's just, it, you wouldn't know it was Billy Bremner, to be honest. You really wouldn't. It's quite gargleless. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's it. And he sort of looks like he's squinting out of one eye at you, which perhaps Billy Bremner did. But I don't remember Billy Bremner having a stigmata, do you? <laughs> That is the perfect addition, the long-term loan for the museum, John. Just tremendous, absolutely brilliant. Okay, well, on the way out, after all this thinking, people are going to be hungry, thirsty. Have you got any snack you'd like to donate for us to sell in the museum cafe? I I would like to donate to what came to be known as Bombay Mix. Now, uh, for, um, you know, everybody knows what Bombay Mix is. It is the thing that will make you put on most weight most quickly because it is fantastic for eating with beer. Um, yeah. But this is not why I have it. Um, when I was going to the borough in the uh, mid-70s, late-70s, there used to be a stall run by hippies um, upstairs in the Castlegate Centre in Stockton. And you, uh, they just used to sell all sorts of drug paraphernalia and stuff. But they also sold what they used to call oobly. That's O-U-B-L-I. Now, I don't know why they called it Oobly. It was Bombay Mix, but it, it used to, they, they, they insisted it be called Oobly. It used to come in little plastic bags. And um, and I used to always buy a bag of that before going to the borough. Uh, so like, it stuck out in my mind. And now I've tried to find out if anybody else has ever called it Oobly, and I, I don't think anybody has. So I presume these hippies in their kind of stoned wisdom have made up a name for us. And it sounded vaguely Indian as well, so you know that kind of, you know, kind of plugged into the to the whole vibe. And um, so, and also, I absolutely bloody love Bombay mix, and I bet you do. I don't think anybody oh, can. Yes. Do it. Oh no. Um, and so, I would donate a, a large bag of oobly to the museum, and and they have to underneath they have to put also known as Bombay mix. <laughs> you have been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. 